Welcome to Halley HealthCast, the wellness podcast from Halley Health, your partner in helping you live your healthiest life. Every episode on our podcast addresses a new topic important to your health and well-being, bringing in expert doctors, specialists, and community leaders who offer advice and answer your most pressing questions. June is Pride Month, a time to celebrate and advocate for the LGBTQ plus community. So on our episode today, we take a look at how to create truly equitable and inclusive healthcare environments, services and experiences for LGBTQ plus patients and their families. Here with us are two expert voices. Dr. Tabitha Wells is a family medicine physician and the program director of the Family Medicine Residency Program at Carl Foundation Hospital in Urbana, Illinois. And Nicole Friedman is the Director of Operations at Uniting Pride of Champaign County, an organization that advocates for the equity, wellness, advocacy, and visibility of the LGBTQ plus communities in Champaign County, Illinois. Welcome to you both, and thanks for being with us today to discuss such an important topic. So let's begin. Nicole, your organization's mission is to create a world where all who identify as sexual and gender minorities can live full healthy, and vibrant lives. It's easy to forget, but no person can live a truly full and vibrant life if they don't have the equal access to safe, welcoming, and appropriate health care. Can you give us a little history of the barriers of LGBTQ plus individuals have faced in our country when it comes to health care? Big question at the top. <laughs> yeah, I could do a whole podcast just on that alone. I know. So <laughs> <laughs> um, in the interest of time, I'll say, of course, there has been barriers throughout time, but I'll stay focused on where we are right now. Barriers that LGBTQ folks face today largely fall in three main categories, lack of access, negative experiences, and lack of knowledge of providers. So lack of access is just what it sounds like. Overall, we're an underinsured group of folks and compared to other demographics, young people are sometimes kicked out of homes early, don't have access to schooling therefore don't have access to good jobs, which of course is where a lot of people get their health insurance. Even if folks are able to navigate a system and, and get through to Obamacare, um, often that is baseline insurance. And then there's a lot of cost prohibitive stuff that comes along with it. So we're talking about just being able to afford care and get insurance coverage. But we're also talking about where the access even is. You know, if you live in a smaller part of the state or, you know, somewhere in the country where there's there's less care that is focused on LGBTQ issues. You may have to add in transportation costs in order to go get the care that you need. That's another huge barrier. Then we talk about negative experiences, and negative experiences are a range of things, obviously, but it's generally about non-affirming experiences, people being misgendered, dead named, doctors or nurses or other staff in facilities who aren't open-minded and, and don't consider that people have different lives, and that means their health care needs to be different as well. The last one is a little bit more specific, especially in our community. We get this complaint a decent amount of times. Sometimes, especially trans folks, feel like they have to train their providers in how to give them the kind of care they need. And that's really not ideal for lay people to be having to go and reach into their communities and networks, find people who've gone through some of the same stuff before, and find information about the kind of care they should be giving and then getting and then bringing it to their providers. And then, of course, unfortunately, providers don't always listen to their patients because they aren't experts, of course. But, but then you've got this double thing happening where the providers aren't going to look for it. And then they're not listening to their patients when their patients bring them information. 
as you can see, this can create a really difficult scenario for LGBTQ folks to get the kind of health care that they need. No, absolutely. I completely hear you. And thank you for that explanation, Nicole. Now, Dr. Wells, apart from creating a just, welcoming, and safe environment, what are the specific services and types of care that a truly inclusive healthcare organization should offer to members of the LGBTQ plus community? Well, the care offered for the LGBTQ plus community should really be exactly the same as the care offered to all patients. Mm-hmm. So I'm talking about primary care services, counseling services, OB-GYN care, including pregnancy management, contraception management, preventive health management, like cervical cancer screenings, mammograms, diabetes screenings, STI prevention Mm -hmm. and testing. But additional offerings that are specific to the community would be things like gender-affirming care, including hormone therapy, referrals for different types of surgeries, like top surgery, bottom surgery, hysterectomies, orchiectomies, facial feminization or masculinization surgeries, pre-exposure prophylaxis, for HIV, but there is a really important thing to note as with all healthcare services, insurance coverage varies for different healthcare services and procedures, and that can vary greatly from state to state. So patients need to check with their plan to see what is covered and what out-of-pocket costs might be, and patients need to work closely with their providers to use the appropriate insurance-determined diagnoses to try to get as much coverage as possible. Some examples that I've run into are gender-affirming hormone therapy may not be covered under Mm -hmm. some plans. Sometimes using certain diagnoses can help get it covered. Gender-affirming surgeries might not be covered, but again, using certain diagnoses, we can sometimes get them covered. Specific issue that I had in the past, but I've not run into in the last few years since the ACA was enacted, was when the gender identity on legal documents or on the insurance information for the patient didn't match the preventative health care needs of the patient, that preventative health care coverage was denied. So, For instance, when a male patient still needed cervical cancer screenings or mammograms, that coverage would be denied. Mm -hmm. Mm. Okay. Well, thank you so much for that. And Nicole, is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, obviously everything Dr. Wells said. I want to make sure that we also think about the way patients are treated, spoken to, and engaged with, uh, not just by their providers, but also from non-provider employees as well. You know, If patients could expect an affirming experience from the moment they park their car and walk in the door to check in, maybe even multiple check-ins to whoever they ask for directions to when they finally get in the room with a provider. I mean, if they could expect an affirming experience across the board, that would be life-changing. Right now, the standard scenario is that most LGBTQ folks expect a non-affirming experience and are happy and surprised if they get one. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could invert that and and have the expectation be that their experience is going to be an affirming one and the times that it isn't are the exceptions. Gotcha. Yeah, it's so surprising. We we have come so far, but we have so far to still go. Thank you for your response, Nicole. And Dr. Wells, I know this is an issue near and dear to your heart. I know that we're continuing to look for more and more ways to make healthcare more welcoming, safe, available, and equitable for the LGBTQ plus community. 
But what are some of the strides that have already been made, like we were just talking about, in the past few years to improve the situation? Talking about hospitals, clinics, talk to us about that progress. So a big one, like I said, was when the ACA was passed that provided insurance coverage for many patients countrywide, but specifically many patients in the LGBTQ plus community that didn't prior have insurance like Nicole was talking about earlier. So now patients have coverage for all aspects of healthcare, but especially to mental health. This is really important because we know that people in the LGBTQ plus community face higher rates of multiple forms of violence, higher rates of substance use disorder, higher rates of self-harm and suicide than their non-LGBTQ counterparts. Other examples by insurance companies are coverage for PrEP, HIV care, coverage for gender-affirming care like I was talking about earlier. Some things that clinics and hospitals have done are like being open about providing LGBTQ plus care, so advertising on their websites, inclusive advertising, advertising featuring same-sex couples, listing their providers on LGBTQ plus provider directories so that patients can specifically seek them out, posting LGBTQ friendly symbols and stickers like a rainbow flag or other symbols or stickers, visibly posting a non-discrimination policy on the clinic walls Mm -hmm. or hospital walls, having brochures and advertisements that feature educational materials specific to the LGBT community and their healthcare concerns, signing up to participate in the Human Rights Campaign Healthcare Equality Index would be a huge one, displaying posters like educational posters from nonprofit organizations that are specific to LGBTQ organizations or HIV or even from the CDC about health concerns to the LGBTQ community, customizing patient intake forms, destigmatizing HIV, having pronouns on all employees' name badges, employers that offer same-sex partner benefits, employers mandating implicit bias training, inclusivity training, cultural sensitivity and competency training, education about how language matters and using proper language and patient-preferred language, utilizing and teaching trauma-informed care, I I can go on. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I don't think we'll be able to fit everything we can do into this 30 (laughs) minutes, but it's encouraging to hear that there are so many options and ways to make people feel comfortable, Dr. Wells. And, you know, I understand that you yourself and your colleagues at Carl Foundation Hospital have put into place a large number of these important changes. Can you discuss what you've done and the changes you've made at Carl and the positive results that you've seen from them so far? So I think the most recent thing we've done is a gender health um, or gender equity, I can't remember what it's called, monthly (laughs) webinar series. I actually did the first talk in the series that was just kind of an intro to LGBTQ healthcare that really just gave very basics like definitions, things like that, and just first steps of what you can do to make patients comfortable and things like that. And it It's once a month through June. It'll be covering a multitude of LGBTQ-related topics, including trans health. And then in June, we will end with a panel just for Q&A. But it's open to all CARL staff, and it's online, and we've had 300 or more participants at some of them. So it's been very successful, and it is available online because it's been recorded. So it's on the CARL CME website 
if anybody wants to watch it. Oh, I love that. <laughs> we also have an Carl-wide Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Committee that covers everything related to those topics, but they're working on many issues related to the LGBTQ committee, and they're the ones that, with the CME committee, has put on the, those webinars. But some specific things that they've been working on is related to our electronic health record. So through the patient portal or when they check in or during visits, patients can now change their gender. They can list their preferred name. Instead of just having their legal name, they can change their pronouns. Our EHR now has an anatomical inventory. Patients' preferred names will print on their patient stickers instead of just their legal name so that when we call them back, we know the name to call instead of calling the wrong name, and the preferred name will print on hospital bracelets as well. Specifically in the clinic I work in, I've created a few rules or concepts that apply to how we treat all people and how we interact with everyone, not just the LGBTQ population, but I kind of created it because of my work with LGBTQ patients. Ten rules that I got from the Transgender Law Center, but I'm only going to go over a few of them because, again, we're limited on time. (laughs) (laughs) The first one is treat all people as you would want to be treated. The second is refer to all people by the name and pronoun that they use, even when not in their presence. The third is if you are unsure about a person's gender identity or how they wish to be addressed, ask politely for clarification. A simple, what may I call you, goes a long way versus assuming that they want to be called whatever is listed. The fourth is establish a policy for how to address discriminatory comments and behaviors, which we have not done yet. We are working on it. (laughs) The fifth is keep the focus on care and not curiosity. So that one usually needs a little explanation. So this one is more usually specific to transgender patients. It means only ask what's relevant to care. Don't ask about someone's genitals if it's not relevant to what they are there for today. Don't bring learners into a room just so they can meet a transgender patient because they've never met one. If they are not already participating in the care, don't bring them in. Don't ask things not relevant to today's visit. So some of the positive results that we've already seen are better relationships amongst staff, better connections with patients, more inclusivity, people actually feeling like they can be themselves, patients being more open and honest with their providers, um, attempts between providers to collaborate. A lot of us didn't even know each other existed that provide LGBTQ care in Champaign. So we've had a couple meetings and we're creating a list so that we all know each other and can collaborate and refer to each other. And I think the biggest one is just more people interested in LGBTQ care at Carl. A specific example that I have is one of my residents. He talks all the time about he couldn't be happier here because he can finally be himself. He did a drag show for the first time in his life (laughs) because I I told him I would support him and that it would in no way negatively impact his career. And, you know, he always tells this amazing story about how being a black gay man has been difficult because of the typical discriminations that he's always faced being both black and gay. And before he moved here to little old Champaign, Illinois, to start residency, he had never met a black gay physician other than Mm. knowing himself. Mm -hmm. And the first weekend he moved into his house, he met one of his neighbors who happened to be a black gay physician here at Carl. 
And now he has a great relationship with this physician who is now one of his mentors and has been a huge positive influence for him, both in his career and in his life as a black gay man. So even with all these changes and positive things, we're not nearly done. We have a long way to go. You know, I would Mm -hmm. love to eventually be on the list of the Human Rights Campaign Centers of Excellence for LGBTQ plus healthcare. Um, But again, we have a long way to go. There's a lot of things on their list that needs to happen. But a couple of the things on my list of things that need to happen are more providers doing full spectrum LGBTQ plus care, inclusive Mm -hmm. advertising. You know, we need some advertising that includes same-sex couples. We need improvements in sexual health care overall, including HIV prevention, STI education, things like that. And, you know, many of the things I discussed earlier that other hospitals and clinics are doing are things that we're not doing yet. So, you know, we need to do everything on that list that I was already talking about. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's some incredible work that you're doing, Dr. Wells. And that was such a good point to bring up about visibility and being able to see providers and caretakers that look like you. I think that's so important as well. And now, Nicole, how have you and your colleagues at Uniting Pride of Champaign County worked to address health care issues and inequities over there? What are some of the actions you've taken and also those you plan to take in the months and years to come? So this is a moment when I um, let people in on information that uh, we, we find out people don't always know. People tend to think we are a larger and older organization than we are. We actually have only been around about 12 years and we have one and a half employees. So we are a teeny tiny little nonprofit organization finding our way and building things up. And we're doing really well and we're on a, a big growth plan. So we're excited about all of that. But I understand that people think we're bigger than we are, maybe because we have such an an imprint in the community, especially with Pride Fest and that sort of thing. But there are limits to what we've been able to do and and what we're going to be doing. But we sincerely hope that we have less and less limits as we go. But what we have done is training. Dr. Wells talked about those seminars that have been happening monthly. We did one of those. And we do cultural competency trainings all over the county, and we are grateful to have been invited into a number of healthcare organizations and institutions. There's also an Illinois Department of Public Health LGBTQ plus roundtable task force group they started up this year. We're thrilled to be involved with that. And that is the goal of eliminating health disparities throughout all of Illinois, and particularly hyper-focusing on communities that have been underserved. We also have a directory of providers that we know to be affirming on our website. This is something we started a couple years back, mostly just with providers we know through, you know, our own personal and social networks. And then we've since reached out and tried to expand that list. It is by no means comprehensive. So if there are providers out there listening to this who believe you're affirming and aren't on that list yet, get in touch. We have a set of standards and questions we ask. Um, But something to note is that if we get complaints from the community, we will also post them up along with the directory because that's part of that transparency. But we would love to have a a full and comprehensive understanding of providers in our community who really can be trusted to provide fully affirming care. That would be amazing. So that's something we are in the process of doing. And then I'm glad Dr. Wells brought up mental health care. Mm -hmm. You know, what, what Dr. Wells was talking about is so true. It's really difficult in our community. We have higher rates across the board, but also even folks who have insurance often have no coverage or very little coverage for mental health care. And the cost is so prohibitive that it's just, 
it's really difficult. So one of the, we are not mental health providers, but one of the things we can do and we do do is have support groups for all ages from our littlest of littles to younger kids to older kids and teens up to a bunch for adults, including an aging up group for our elders. We held over 180 meetings last year and uh, we're excited to do even more of that this year. You know, we, we can't necessarily get everybody mental health with experts, but we can certainly create groups of peers who maybe have been there before, who can help each other out and support each other and try to make up some of the gap that's missing there. But in a dream scenario, we'd love to provide everybody real mental health care from experts. And we'd love to be doing training all over the place and, and you know, really helping to expand access. So if there's anybody out there who wants to help us do our work, who wants to help us on this growth plan, please do through donations, through volunteering, through finding resources for us, through helping us expand these programs. We want it. We need it. We're desperate for it. Please, please, please. (laughs) Well, it is just so inspiring to hear everything you're doing, Nicole. Thank you so much for sharing. And Dr. Wells, as someone who's began the important work to create more inclusive and equitable health care for LGBTQ patients and families, what advice do you have for other doctors, hospitals, and clinics? Another huge question here, but we'll break it into two parts. What can they be doing right now or tomorrow in the short term? And then how about some tips for long-term planning to create those lasting, permanent, holistic changes in offices? I mean, really, it's just all the things I've already been talking about, everything that I listed earlier. It really just starts with one person deciding to make the change and taking the first steps to do that. When I came here to Carl, there really wasn't much social justice stuff going on in the residency program here. So I just passed out rainbow stickers to put on our name badges and passed out pronoun pins. And that was what started everything. So, you know, my advice for the first thing would be, if you want to do it, just start it and pick something that is easy and needed, whether it's displaying pronouns and buying bulk pronoun pins like I did on Amazon and buying (laughs) bulk rainbow stickers and cutting them up into small pieces for badges, doing a sit down and educating staff about language use ordering free education materials from CDC or other organizations to stick up in bathrooms or wherever you can get away with sticking them up (laughs) for the longer term planning. You know, obviously you're going to do the harder ones like changing the intake forms or creating inclusive advertising, training providers in LGBT care, you know, that that's obviously going to take longer, but there's a lot of CME courses out there both in person, yes, they're back, (laughs) or (laughs) virtual, and even some free webinars that providers can do that are free. You know, anybody that's interested can can learn this. I'm completely self-taught with my LGBT care. You know, it it was needed. I had a patient walk into the office that wanted care, and I didn't know any specifics, so I went and looked them up. And kept looking things up and kept teaching myself. You know, no one taught me how to do any of this. It, it was a need that I felt. So anybody, anybody can do it. Well, that's actually a great segue into my next question. It's for Nicole, but in your opinion, what types of resources, training, and education do doctors and hospitals and clinics need to create this lasting change? And how can community organizations like yours help them out? Well, I just want to say that there's been a huge uptick in healthcare organizations and and folks asking us to come and do our cultural competency trainings. And we are thrilled 
that that's happening. We love doing it. We will happily come and camp out at your facility for a month if we need to, to get everyone trained. And that's the number one thing, because so far it's been this team here or this group there or this particular set of, of leaders at this one organization. What we'd love is if literally every single person who is involved with healthcare in our community could get this training. And I, I'm just going to reiterate what I said earlier, which is it needs to not just be providers, but the other staff as well. And anybody that somebody might touch from the moment they walk in the door to the moment they leave, all the feedback tells us when we do these trainings that folks learn a ton, they understand the impact better, and they get useful tools to walk out the door with about how they can make shifts right away. So we really wish that we could get in front of everybody. And if that was something healthcare organizations would give us the time to do, we'd be there in a heartbeat. Also, it's not something you just do one and done. As new folks get hired, of course, they need this training. But, you know, just like with medical science, best practices grow and change. Data grows and changes, you know, and, and so we need to keep coming back and, and touching on these every so often. I'm so thrilled to see the way that providers are always going back for continuing education, but they're not necessarily doing it around LGBTQ care. So, you know, we'd love to have that looped into, you know, what we're doing. And we also like to see some deeper training that goes on because sometimes we're invited in for a very short period of time and there's only so much you can get into around that. If we're invited in for a longer period of time, we can do some training on interventions and what we call gentle corrections for uh, when folks make mistakes, right? Or when affirming care isn't being delivered, how do you address that? How, how do you fix it and change it and, and make sure that everybody's on board in the same way to be delivering the same kind of care. So more time is important too. And then a dream goal <laughs> for us, <laughs> which is a bit of a longer term, maybe a larger issue. We've heard from medical students that they get one hour of training on LGBTQ care. Not one hour a month, not one hour a semester, not one hour a year, one hour total in all of their training. Now, obviously, we don't think that's enough. And the evidence shows it's not enough because the care is not being delivered when they get out into the world. And there are health outcome disparities, right? So we would love it if we could shift it such that we put ourselves out of business, right? We train people in school such that we have to do far less training once they're out there in the world. And I'll say this, people who disagree with increasing the amount of time spent on training around LGBTQ care often cite low percentage population. So polls vary, but generally there's a 5 to 7 percent-ish range for um, adults who identify as LGBTQ in this country. However, when you start breaking it down by generation, it gets real interesting, real fast, because about 20% of millennials are identifying as LGBTQ+. And now there's some new polls coming out around Gen Z that are saying it's somewhere between 30 and 40% of Gen Z are identifying as LGBTQ+. Obviously, mm. there are not more queer people in the world. People are feeling safe to identify as queer. Younger generations are feeling safer than older generations to do that. But I really hope that shifts the conversation. Because when you're talking about the right amount of time to a lot to 5% of the population, that's a very different conversation than if you're talking about allotting time to 40% of the population. So I sincerely hope we can shift the mindset around the kind of time that's needed to get us to a place of affirming care for all patients. Beautiful. Nicole, thank you so much for that. I'll turn to Dr. Wells now. So far, we've mostly talked about, you know, the importance of creating equitable and inclusive health care for patients and their families. 
But another key change is the hiring of more doctors and nurses and staff who identify as queer, LGBTQ+. You know, we talked about earlier your resident who moved to Champaign and is now a drag queen. I love that. And can you let our listeners know just again why it's so important that hospitals and clinics hire individuals who identify as LGBTQ+. And also on that topic, since you're the program director of the Carl Family Medicine Residency Program, why is it key to make college, med school, and grad school more welcoming, safe, and inclusive for LGBTQ plus individuals? So I hate that these even have to be questioned. Yeah, right. I know. <laughs> so someone's sexuality, ethnicity, or any other personal trait should not matter when it comes to the care they provide or the job they perform or whether they're going to get a job or not, right? Mm. But with what is going on in Texas right now Mm. with some of these laws that are being passed and Texas trying to make it legal to discriminate. We have to talk about these things. A couple of key points is, you know, like I talked about earlier, it's very important for everyone to have representation. It's vital to have a physician workforce that reflects the population it serves. We know that those from marginalized communities might feel more comfortable with a care provider with a similar background. We know people in the LGBT community have higher rates of health disparities, in part because of seeking health care less often due to prior biases and discrimination they've faced when seeking medical care or fear of, of that same bias or discrimination or because of mm. actual denial of health care services. Many patients are fearful or have levels of distrust about disclosing sexual orientation or gender identity or otherwise advocating for their own healthcare needs to their providers because of their prior experiences. But we also know when a provider shows knowledge and sensitivity about LGBTQ community and concerns, patients are more likely to establish effective therapeutic relationships. There's a lot of reasons it's important to hire more physicians that are LGBTQ+. As for the students and residents, they deserve to see someone like themselves in leadership positions to serve as a mentor and role model, like my resident that I was talking about earlier. An interesting thing is that the Association of American Medical Colleges, the AAMC, started collecting data on sexual orientation in 2017, which is fantastic. It's way late, but it's fantastic. And we are actually seeing the numbers of graduating medical students identifying as part of the LGBTQ plus community rising, which goes along with what Nicole was just saying. But overall, we don't know how many LGBTQ plus physicians there are. We don't know where they practice. And we don't know what specialties they're in because so far, the AAMC is the only one collecting any data. So about being welcoming, inclusive, and safe, really, no one should ever go anywhere and not feel welcome or safe, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. does anyone ever say, I want to not feel safe right now? (laughs) Right? I mean, Opt out, yeah. Right? (laughs) This whole movement would never have happened if people felt safe and included to begin with. So I'll talk about some of the things that we've specifically done in our residency since I came. I mentioned a few earlier, but I've really tried to create an inclusive and welcoming environment for our staff, our residents, the physicians, our patients. Like I said, I walked around with rainbow stickers for anybody that wanted to put them on their badges. I walked around with pronoun pins that everybody could pick from. I've done quite a few LGBTQ plus patient 
care education sessions for the residents. I am the first person here to provide gender-affirming care. I really stress wellness and mental health for ourselves, especially for the residents. Make my residents use their vacation time when I found out that (laughs) some of them don't use all their vacation time. I scolded them and told them I expected them to use their vacation time. And if they didn't use one or two days, fine. But if they rolled over like a week, well, they can't roll over. If they didn't use like a week or something, I was I was not happy. And then we also created a diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism committee for graduate medical education that's outside of the overall committee so that the residents and faculty have their own committee to work on issues that relate specifically to resident training. Oh, my gosh. You two are just doing so much. It's incredible to hear. Thank you so much for sharing, Dr. (laughs) Wells. And Nicole, of course, I'll open to you. Anything else you'd like to add on this topic? Yeah. So um, I'll just say, look, I'm not I'm not young. I'm 46. I very (laughs) much remember the first time when a doctor was asking me about my sexual activity and added the question with men, women or both. Mm. I'll remember his face. I'll remember what his, what the room looked like. <laughs> it was a, I, I don't have words for the way in which it was life-changing to suddenly have a moment where I knew I wasn't going to have to have an awkward conversation with a doctor. And I wasn't sure whether I was safe to have that awkward conversation with a doctor. And this was a doctor who had, you know, photos in his office with his husband, you know, and I, I can't speak enough to how much it matters to have this kind of representation and then to feel it in the way that care is being delivered to someone. Now, obviously that question needs to be updated because we know gender isn't a binary and just asking men and women or both, you could get the answer no because someone's partner could be non-binary. So we need to update that question. But when it happened 20 or so years ago to me for the first time in my life, it was huge progress and it changed the way I interacted with healthcare. But I'd also just like to say that in relation to trying to make this kind of progress, I want to make sure we don't skip over the idea that we need people in positions of power to advocate on behalf of our LGBTQ community. We can't just put it all on the shoulders of LGBTQ folks who work in healthcare. We need folks who want to be allies because let's be honest, there are biases that may mean that LGBTQ voices aren't listened to in the same way. Minority voices need majority voices in the conversation. We need people with power to not just be allies, but be accomplices. To utilize a phrase from an incredible civil rights leader, we need you all to make good trouble on our behalf because you will inevitably suffer far fewer consequences for that trouble due to your position of power. So yes, we need representation. And yes, we need allies. But I want those allies to think about how they can be advocates or even accomplices in the work that needs to get done. Because that's the only way we're really going to get there. Mm. Well, thank you. Y'all are so passionate. It is so wonderful to hear the work you're doing and the work you continue to do. And just thank you so much from I'm moved as just the host here. Um, But my final question, and I'd love to hear both of your thoughts. In your opinion, what would a perfectly fair, equitable and inclusive future look like in terms of health care for LGBTQ plus individuals and their families? Uh, Dr. Wells, we'll start with you. I mean, I just really think it would look no different than it does for everyone else. You know, LGBTQ plus individuals would have the same respect from everyone 
you know, be seen as equals instead of as other, same legal benefits, same health insurance benefits, same tax benefits, just same everything. And, you know, like Nicole was talking about earlier, feel affirmed from the moment they get out of their car and not have any fear when they go to their healthcare provider that they're not going to be accepted. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Dr. Wells. And Nicole, same question to you. Yeah. Bottom line is outcome disparities, right? We, we can't necessarily know exactly all the little things that go into why, but we absolutely can measure outcomes and our community's outcomes are not good. And so whatever it takes to get those outcomes up to other people who get healthcare, I mean, you know, whether that's changing the behavior, whether that's changing and challenging insurance, whether that's challenging state law and, and legalities, or whether that's education, you know, I mean, there's a whole host of areas in which we, we have to do work to get there. But I think we all know this isn't the kind of thing you can slap a Band-Aid on. It's not something you're going to be able to get done in, in one training or, you know, by putting a rainbow sticker on it as much as we love our rainbow stickers. And believe me, we do. <laughs> but um, th- this is this is deep dive work and it's going to be years and it's going to be long term. And uh, I just say, you know, we are incredibly grateful for doctors like Dr. Wells and, and for other folks that we've worked with who are really truly committed to what it takes to change the outcome disparities. Well, like I said, you both have truly been such wonderful guests with such important and inspiring messages. Thank you so much for joining us today. And for all you do every day at Uniting Pride of Champaign County and Carl Foundation Hospital, you help so many individuals and families throughout our communities. That concludes today's Halley HealthCast. Tune in next time as we tackle yet another topic important for your health and well-being. And remember, Halley Health is your partner in helping you live your healthiest life. Visit Halley.com, that's H-A-L-L-Y.com, for resources, information, tips, and much more. Let us help keep you and your family healthy and well. Thanks for listening. We hope you tune in again.